Beloved congregation of the Lord, read with me again Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, beloved congregation, we've worked through this section of the Word of God for longer than I anticipated as. We began to go through these names and then different aspects of the kingdom of Jesus Christ became clear that it was drawing out so many rich truths for our edification, for the upbuilding of our faith. I found that we kept on coming back and back to it to understand the full significance of this prophecy. It's led us not only to this chapter of the Bible, but really throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, throughout the word of God, there is this uniting theme of the salvation of the Lord's people and the implications of that salvation for everyone and everything. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, its increase, we are told, shall be without end. It has a glorious prospect in our future. A glorious victory shall be realized as the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Not only in the private lives of this or that group of believers, but a kingdom in which judgment and justice are established. The law of God upheld and permeating all of life, a civilization that also has implications for government and culture and everything that we would care to speak of. And when we hear of such glorious prospects of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, does not your heart somewhat ache, believer? You turn on the news You walk about your neighborhood, you go to your work, and it's so evident that we have but only a taste of the realization of these things. Indeed, the people that walked in darkness saw a great light when Jesus first came and established his church and people and accomplished our salvation, and yet the darkness yet looms over the hearts and over the nations of this world. And so what will bring us from where we are now to where this prophecy would speak of? Are we to anticipate that every day and in every way things are just going to get better and better until we wake up and and see that it's all happened? Well, if you know anything about church history, you know that that's certainly not the case. 
There are times of spiritual growth and expansion as people are saved. The worship of God is restored and reformed. Sound doctrine is proclaimed. Judgment and justice overcome iniquity and sin and injustice. Great and glorious deeds of God that shake history. We think of the Reformation. We think of the great works of God in also this nation and and others in the past. And yet we know that there's also periods of declension, of backsliding, of growing darkness. And which is the day that we live in? Well, I suppose it depends on where you look in this world. We're told that there are now more Christians in the land of China than there are in North America, which was not the case but a few centuries ago. And so we say that the Lord Jesus and his kingdom, they are not impeded, they are expanding. And yet at the same time, we also see that there are great drawbacks in our own land great apostasy. Things are not as they should be. The nation here in Canada that once proclaimed itself a dominion of Jesus Christ from sea to sea now is a den of iniquity, a place that prides itself on flouting every law of God and and embellishing in every abomination and sin. And so what is it that we yearn for? What is it that we long for? Well, surely it is that the Lord would do a great work, that the Lord would intervene. We don't imagine, do we, that just by engaging in politics or engaging in in our pitiful little works that we can accomplish anything. No, not by strength nor by, by, by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The Lord must work a revival. The Lord must bring life where there is death and do amazing and grand things. And such is his delight to do. Indeed, much talk of revival in our own day, even in recent weeks. And much discussion about is revival here or is revival there important and profitable things for we want to rightly discern whether a work is of the Lord or no and rightly discern if it is a mixture of the Lord's work and attacks of the devil. We want to weigh these things biblically. But indeed, we ought not to despise any work of the Lord. We ought indeed to yearn for any work of God wherever it may be whether in the Reformed churches or outside of our tradition, we long for Jesus Christ to be uplifted, for the gospel to go forth, for our sinners to be saved. We long that the Spirit of the Lord would move upon this world and press back the darkness. So it is that we should be most thankful of these words that conclude Verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I believe it's rather a key to understanding many things in the verse, linking all things unto the power and the will of God to bring about that which he promises. The most important truth 
and that which is very relevant as we pray for, as we yearn for the Spirit of the Lord to work in great ways in our generation. Unless I'm mistaken, we will return to this verse in a um, Sunday in the future, also to unpack more things. But I want to begin to un- unfold uh, this part of the verse this afternoon and help us really understand what is contained here. And so, with the Lord's help, we will consider the Lord's zeal. The Lord's zeal. And we'll begin by offering a definition of the Lord's zeal. Draw out some implications, then I wish to ask, what is our response? Our response. So, the Lord's zeal, definition, some implications, and our response. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, of course, we understand, don't we, that someone who is zealous, they're someone who means business. They're not someone who feels small emotions or engages in small actions. No, they are active because of deep conviction, because of deep persuasion. They are moved in order to act because they are compelled to act. Maybe you've heard of that uh, story about the man named Phineas, where in the days of a great plague that was coming upon the people of God in, in the book of Numbers because of their terrible abominations, um, Phineas, in Numbers 25, took up a spear and thrust that spear through two people engaged in sexual immorality that were intentionally flouting the law of God and seeking to bring the people of God into apostasy. And there in Numbers 25, verse 11, it says, Phineas, in the words of the Lord here to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned away my wrath away from the children of Israel when he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. A man who is zealous is not going to compromise from his principle. A man who is zealous is going to follow through with what he is committed to do. And so when we see zeal in a man, we should, we should think of something that is ever more perfect, infinitely more glorious when we ascribe it unto God. And yet it's important, I think, that we understand some human examples of how this word zeal is used. So we begin to understand how it has reference to God and as well as to this verse. And when I've been studying this verse and seeking to understand it, what uh, is most interesting is some of the more prominent examples take place in the context of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman that especially arises when the marriage covenant is profaned with adultery. So 
Sometimes it is translated as jealousy, not any jealousy, but the jealousy that arises from a husband when the wife has been unfaithful. There's a number of places where it is used in that way. Still in the book of Numbers, chapter 5, verse 12, we have there um, what is spoken of as the sacrifice of jealousies or of zeal, we could say, same word. And let me just read for you a little bit of the context there. Numbers chapter 5, verse 12. And the Lord says this, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man's wife go astray and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there is no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy or the spirit of zeal come upon him, and he is jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled, then shall the man bring his wife to the, unto the priest, and he shall bring an offering for her. You can read on, and it's, it's a most sobering text. And it illustrates how the priests will have the woman drink bitter water, and the Lord will perform a terrible judgment if indeed she is guilty of, of profaning the marriage covenant, where she will have her body deformed and ultimately she will die under the curse of God. You can Read it all for yourself. And a reminder, isn't it, that the marriage covenant is a most holy thing. The marriage covenant between one man and one woman for life is something the Lord so highly esteems. And even the unbeliever will understand this. When there is adultery or when there is unfaithfulness in a marriage, there cannot be peace. There must be Jealousy, there must be wrath, there must ultimately be no peace. Look again in Proverbs chapter 6, another passage that illustrates this. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 30 to 35. There we read Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy, or you could say literally zeal, is the rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. So this is the immediate instance. And of course, this is something very easy to understand. A wife is, a, is the husband's prize and jewel. The wife is that which the husband is to love and to cherish and for a marriage to be shattered in this way. It cannot but for, bring forth righteous anger, righteous 
vengeance. This is the principle that is held forth here. And so we do very well to then ask the question, how then is this used of God? How is this used of God when we would speak of his zeal? Well, what you find is that the most prominent use of this in reference to God is where it concerns the unfaithfulness of his church. The unfaithfulness of his church. That the unfaithfulness of the people of God unto our covenant with, our covenant making and keeping God is likened unto the heinous and profane act which mars the marriage covenant. So I'll, I'll read a slightly longer passage now. This from the book of Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. And I'll begin reading at verse 30. Begin reading at verse 30. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing that thou doest all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman, and that thou buildest thine eminent place in the head of every way, and makest thine high place in every street, and and hast not been as an har- and hast not been as an harlot in that thou scornest hire, but as a woman that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband. They give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers, and hirest them that they might come unto thee on every side for thy whoredoms. And on the contrary, is in thee from other women in thy whoredoms. Whereas none followeth thee to commit whoredoms, and in that thou givest a reward, and no reward is given unto thee, therefore thou art contrary." So the implication here is that the church of the old covenant, the Jewish church, is so wicked in their idolatry, in their breaking of the covenant with their God, that they are likened unto an unfaithful woman who will do so even without reward, even worse than the prostitute. Now we see the Lord's response in verse 35. Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations and by the blood of thy children, which thou didst give unto them. Behold, therefore I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure and all them that thou hast loved with all them that thou hast hated, and I will even gather them round about against thee, and will discover thy nakedness unto them, that they may see all thy nakedness. And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged, and I will give thee blood in fury and jealousy. 
or zeal. And I will also give thee into their hand, and they shall throw down thine eminent place, and shall break down thy high places. They shall strip thee also of thy clothes, and shall take thy fair jewels, and leave thee naked and bare. They shall also bring up a company against thee. They shall stone thee with stones, and thrust thee through with their swords. And they shall burn thine houses with fire, and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women. And I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot, and thou shalt give no hire any more. And then the same word, verse 42. So I will make my fury toward thee and my jealousy, zeal shall depart from thee and I will be quiet and will be no more angry. And so we see the context, surely congregation. This is the ordinary use of how it is used. The marriage covenant between the Lord and his people. This covenant of grace whereby they are bound unto the Lord in faith and repentance. It is this covenant which where it is grieved, it agitates the zeal, the the wrath of the Lord in jealous vengeance for where his marriage covenant is broken. Many other places I could give you, but you ought to understand that this is a principle not only for the old covenant, but also for the new. It concerns also what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 1. There the Apostle Paul writes, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means as the servant beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity of Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom ye have not preached, nor if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might bear with him. And so what is this common denominator? Well, the Lord is most jealous for his bride. The church of Jesus Christ is the apple of his eye whether under the old covenant or the new, that his, his wrath is, exi- is excited in a special way when his people play the harlot, seeking after other gods, other gospels, other Christs, where they depart from the purity of his worship and the purity of sound doctrine. It is no small matter, you see, when the church departs from the living God. When we depart from God and from his Christ, you see this is something which causes the earth to shake, causes nations to rise and fall. If we would have but eyes to see and see about the great judgments of the Lord upon the earth, not brought about because of bad luck, not brought about because the Lord is occupied with this and that and the other thing equally, but because this is what is most important. 
when his people are separated as a chaste bride unto Christ. I think this is something we do well to contemplate congregation. This is the meaning of this word. And it's in that sense I wish to now unfold some implications from precisely our text. Here from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. Read the whole thing again in this light. We read here of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end of the throne, upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now how can these things go together? Here we have the... the, uh, the promises of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant, with the focal point in the work of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, him being born of the Virgin Mary, him him being given as a son, him being the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace and all these things, and his, his throne being erected and his kingdom being established, increasing and increasing and And it is this that it says will do it. This that will perform it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. How can we explain that usage? Well, even if you compare the um, how this word is used, often the idea here is that yes, there is the wrath of God and there is the jealousy of God for his people. But this can be be moved to act for the vindication of his people. As he saves his church from her whoredoms, as he saves his church from her backslidings, as he redeems her from the enemies that would afflict her. Is that not what we read in that passage in Isaiah 63? We read there of the people of God with hearts yearning for the Lord to work smiting from their judgments, chastened for their sins, humble to the dust. They plead unto the Lord. They plead for him to act. And and they say in Isaiah 63, verse 15, Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me. Are they restrained? And then you read on in that section. He's, and he's talking about how it is that the people of God are downtrodden and dishonored through the enemies of the Lord. Verse 17, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sakes, the tribe of thine inheritance, The people of thy holiness has possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and that thou wouldest come down. Such is the prayer for the revival of the Lord. And it's a striking thing that, that 
the unfaithful, the backsliding people of God should be able to make this argument, or rather that the Holy Spirit places this argument upon the lips of the church. Not that we are righteous and not that we have been faithful, but that yet your love for this marriage yet endures. We are to be that chaste virgin unto Christ, And yet the enemies of God have trodden down the sanctuary. They have defiled the holy places. And we, we are yet your people, O Lord. We are yet the bride of Christ. We are yet that people purchased by your blood. And it is this, it is this motivation that despite the Lord's people's or rather despite the unfaithfulness of the Lord's people, that the Lord would be moved in order to act. You know, sometimes we do yearn, don't we, for the Lord to work. And we, we, we imagine that it will not happen until the church gets her act together, until there is a true reformation of doctrine and of worship, then we can expect the Lord to act. And so you look at verses where, where this seems to be taught in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Well, indeed, if we're serious about revival then you and me, we must get serious about holiness. We must get serious about repentance. We must get serious about prayer. We must be those who would plead before the throne of grace, lay hold of these promises, and say, Lord, will you not act? Will you not hear the pleadings of your people? But let me tell you this. If we should expect that the Lord is constrained to act until all is well, And we are asking, aren't we, that we would be healed from our sicknesses before the physician can arrive. No, it's surely this. If the Lord's people, those who have spiritual understanding, those who have spiritual life, would seek his face, it cannot be that this that we plead, that we have all of our act together as the church, and so it's incumbent upon you to reward us for how well we are doing. No. That is not the prayer we can pray today. Does anyone even think that if we were to hold up the Reformed churches, offer them before the Lord, offer up our own, our own congregations, our own families and our own lives, and say, look what wonderful Christians we are, that we could bring down a single blessing from the Lord? No. It's not so as... We read in Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to receive the heart of the contrite ones. If we would be rightly humbled and contrite, And we ought not to look at this or that other tradition and say those are the problems that the Lord is angry with. No, it ought to begin 
ought to begin with us. We ought to confess the sins that we perceive in ourselves, in our own families, in our own churches. Hold them before the Lord and say, Lord, where is thy zeal? Despite our unfaithfulness, despite our coldness, will you not revive us? Will you not save us from our whoredoms? Will you not work in great and mighty ways, not because we deserve it, but because you on your side are infinitely faithful unto your covenant? That is the plea of the hour. That is what we must plead, congregation, if we are serious about revival. If we look at this verse and we long for the kingdom of Christ to move in great and glorious ways, then this is what we must pray. This must be our heart's yearning. Let this verse, the zeal of the Lord, have this effect upon you and me. With that, I'd like to speak a word about our response, a word about our response. Here is the Lord's zeal. He is like this husband who is moved into action because of his fiery, jealous love for the wife who is espoused unto him. But it moves not only in rage and wrath, no, it moves in mercy, it moves in love in order to save us from our pollutions. And how is it that we shall respond? You know, I think that I would just leave you with this. Where is your zeal? Let me ask the Lord, where is your zeal? Where have you gone? Where have you been? Can you not move and intervene in these days? We have tasted but a small bit of your reviving grace. Such a small bit of your spirit. We long for sinners to be saved. We long for the nations to be the Lord's inheritance. But we also ought to ask this question of you and me and all of us. Where is our zeal? And you do find that this word is used of believers. Psalm 119 Verse 139, my zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. The words of the Lord. Has your zeal consumed you? Your zeal for the Lord's honor. Do you believe strongly that the Lord's honor is affronted by the unbelief and apostasy of our own day? Do you believe strongly that this must permeate your own life and this must be the impelling force of everything that you do? You know, when it comes to the honor of the Lord, when it comes to the sacred truths of his word, when it comes to our sacred duties from the law of God, then moderation is no virtue. I mean, it's not the way it is with with our own society, they would have you have a respectable Christianity. You can believe this or that or the other thing, but if you believe it too seriously, if you believe it such that it actually changes you, where you don't flinch at the taboos of our society, where you're willing to hold your ground, where you're, where you're there in the battle, where you are firm and resolute in your duty, where you don't blink or flinch when the moment comes, 
and they call you a fanatic. But the Lord would have you be zealous, Christian. You're not saying unto that, third, that church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert, wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. Congregation, the things of the Lord and the promises of God and the zeal of the Lord, if they do not have this effect upon you, bring you out of this lukewarm, useless Christianity into a red-hot, fiery commitment unto the Lord then you have so much cause for mourning, so much cause for grief and repentance. The Lord Jesus says there, doesn't he? I would rather you were cold than lukewarm. Have you ever met someone like that? They have just enough Christianity that they're, they're really immune to its appeals. Someone who's burnt out through a nominal Christianity, they're so much harder to reach than someone who's an utter stranger unto the gospel. And it's to be feared that many of those, even in the professing church, if you push them, if you ask them, if you put them in the right circumstance, put them in the right room where the right pressure is applied, then you could easily get them to deny the Lord. How is it with you? How is it with me? Where is your zeal? Where is my zeal? Are these things not true? Are they not more real and important and vital than everything else that we think and speak and say and do? Is this not what all of life is about? The kingdom and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's purchased you with his blood, Christian. He's indwelt you with his spirit. Live like and live in that place of zeal and utter commitment unto the Lord. This is what will not allow you to settle for the state of the world as it is. If you would be zealous for the cause of the Lord of hosts, zealous for his worship, zealous for his word, zealous for his gospel, then you will be one who will also be in a place to plead unto the Lord.